This is Street Signals, a weekly conversation about markets and macro brought to you by State Street Global Markets. I'm your host, Tim Graff, Head of Macro Strategy for EMEA at State Street, based in London. This week, we are going to do a long overdue deep dive into the message coming out of our various indicators of investor behavior, inflation, portfolio risk, media sentiment, and geopolitical risk. And who better to do that with than the global head of macro strategy, Michael Metcalf. At the end of last year, Michael wrote a piece that appeared on our corporate website called The Seven Surprises for 2023 and What They Mean for Investors. What he did in that piece was look through all of those indicators and find the things that really stood out that had a message for markets to potentially heed in the months as we begin 2024. Well, we are now almost a full month into 2024. The piece actually was published at the end of November last year. And so we've had some time to digest the message from those indicators and also to see how they've evolved over the last few months. Michael, welcome back to you. How's it going? Yeah, good. Thanks, Tim. Great to be back. Well, let's get started. And I wanted to start with the first of the seven surprises you had in your piece. That is the probability of a U.S. recession. We have talked about this a lot on the podcast. This is a quantitative measure of recession probability, just to review. And recession probabilities were very high last year. I think it was the consensus call at the beginning of the year that the U.S. would have some sort of recession of some size. That probability rose in our metric from about 50% from March last year towards 75% in Q3, and it's around 90% now. And yet, of course, we have data that show the U.S. in anything but a recession. What do you think it is that has kept this probability rising for a recession in the coming 12 months? Look, so obviously the interesting thing is ours has gone up when everyone else's has gone down. And so you're kind of digging into the the four factors that drive it. You know, the most obvious one is still the curve. This model defines the curve as Fed funds minus the 10-year. So look, it's it's gonna be a while before that that becomes positive. So that's still very negative. But I think it's also interesting thinking about the economic inputs into it. So it's the growth in payrolls, the annual growth in payrolls and the annual growth in industrial production. And actually the annual growth in payrolls, it is slipping. Uh, it's not a huge yeah. move, but it is slipping. And you know, an IP has been bumping along between zero and 1% growth for a while. So there is something there. Obviously, the, the, the only factor that's moved the other way is equity market returns. It, it is interesting. It just showed that we can't rule out recession. Of those, which do you think would be the most likely driver of an eventual recession? Is it the labor market and therefore the consumer ultimately that suffers? Or is it a continued retrenchment or slow growth, I guess, in the manufacturing sector? Or is it just the the effects of the yield curve that finally pan out? I think mechanistically, and particularly given you know the story of 23 was that the consumer was way more resilient than expected and the labor market didn't quite move as forecast. I think it has to be payrolls first and then the consumer. That, that I think, is the most likely driver. And manufacturing on its own obviously isn't big enough, but manufacturing on its own was is supposed to be a cyclical signal. You know, This time around, it's been different because of the fiscal stimulus has left the consumer a little bit firmer. And, of course, the labor market, uh, because of labor hoarding, has been, you know, hasn't been quite as responsive to some of the sectoral slowdowns that we've seen, as you might have thought. So I, I think it has to be the consumer, ultimately. Just generally, just to finish the the topic, do you think in general the yield curve is as valuable a predictor as it has been? You do have some factors, I think, driving demand, say, for long-dated securities in the U.S. and other markets, for that matter, 
that perhaps invert curves a little bit more rapidly than they might have just through that inelastic demand, I suppose. Do you think that renders the yield curve, which is kind of the main contributor to the model footprint as, as valuable a predictor? Yield curves are obviously distorted. And I think it's worth, worth knowing, even in the US, actually pre-war, the yield curve, because it was, you know, because actually they had various forms of uh, yield targeting then, the yield curve didn't signal in any of the pre-war recessions either. Yeah, obviously, with with the combination of QE and QT, if there's a chance it's wrong this time around because of those distortions, I suppose it's there. But unfortunately, that's only something we can see after the fact, and to, to some degree, uh, uh, it is still the single most reliable indicator of recession that we have compared to all the other variables that we have in the post-war era. So I think we have to kind of give it a bit of a pass and assume <laughs> assume there's something there this time around. But look, you know, ask me in a year's time. Yeah. Recession or no, it does seem as though we are headed for a Fed easing cycle at some point this year of some size this year. You covered in the piece the media stats indicators we have that capture the sentiment tone in the coverage of central banks. And the Fed, as you noted, was in the process of going from a very hawkish coverage tone towards one that is very dovish. And that has basically played out. I think you wrote the piece about two months ago. Since you wrote it, we've gone from pricing about three hikes from the Fed this year to as many as six, six to seven. And we're now kind of settling around four to five. Uh, and I think it's about 135, 140 basis points of cuts this year. Do you think now that markets are better aligned with coverage tone? They are, and I, look, I'm certainly compared to November and, and and compared to much of last year, the big challenge in 23 was that the market went way ahead of the, the Fed in a, on a number of occasions expecting cuts when the Fed tone simply wasn't there. And I think now it's, it's a question of, you know, the Fed tone flipped in November and then you had the official Fed pivot in December. Big question now, I suppose, is we're seeing Fed tone stabilize at what is historically a fairly net dovish level, but the, the market is taking them on a little bit. And you were beginning to see a little bit of Fed pushback in terms of the amount of easing priced in. Yes, we agree on direction, but now it's just a question of, I think, timing and amount. So, but but, but there's no doubt now that, that rate markets and Fed tone are better aligned, even if there might be a slight disagreement on timing and the ultimate amount of rate cuts we see this year. We're going to talk about that in a moment, especially the timing aspect and the, the ability for the Fed to do this comes from something we'll talk about, which is the potential to calibrate real rates lower. But I wanted to just get your thoughts and relate them to the recession probability. I mean, typically when the Fed starts an easing cycle, it's it's often aggressive because, of course, growth we see slowing much more sharply than what we've seen so far. We do have kind of a soft landing in place already. Inflation has been cut in half. Growth hasn't seen any ill effects from that, nor has the labor market. Do you think the easing that is priced now for this year into next year, do you think that forestalls or maybe mitigates recession risks to a degree that is maybe not captured in the recession probability model just yet. Given how the curve goes into that model, and in, in the sense that it, you know, look, it's not the two-year rate, it, literally the Fed funds versus the 10-year. Mm. So no, it, it probably doesn't. Okay. Um, I do think some form of gradual easing is required to stop policy getting tighter because because the news on inflation has been been pretty good. Obviously, if you do get a full-on recession, then it may well be actually that that rates get to neutral a little bit quicker actually than markets are currently suggesting. And I don't think that the the rate cuts that are currently priced in in any way discount a recession. I think that they 
Uh, they're simply just a reflecting the belief that policy should normalize a little bit because inflation is back at target. Well, let's talk about that then. This allows for the Fed to start this easing cycle, perhaps thinking a little bit more proactively than they would relative to past cycles. This soft landing that I've mentioned that I think we are in allows them to do that and calibrate real rates lower. You talked in the piece about the normalization of inflation in the US, but I think we can make that generalization elsewhere. What have you seen over the last couple of months from online inflation that either maybe challenges that belief in normalization or reinforces it? I think it absolutely reinforces it. And and you know, this is taking data, you know, right up until the the 26th of January now, is that in the United States, you know, and and elsewhere, as as you write about quite a lot yourself, Tim, you know, we're seeing, you know, inflation come in below seasonal averages from price stats. Given that we knew that the first first few months of 24 were always going to be about how much will the base effects drag annual inflation rates down both on headline and core. And for that, you sort of assume, well, what if we get average inflation? Now, in in, in years gone by, uh, and you know, I'm thinking uh, in 22 and 23, you know, we know that you have to be really careful. Don't rely on the base effects because your incoming, the incoming monthly stuff can be really strong. And that, that's mm-hmm. absolutely proved to be the case. But that's why it's really important that what we've seen in the last couple of months has been below seasonal averages in, in in general across most countries. And so that does suggest that the base effects finally uh, you know, are going to do their job. It, we won't quite get there in the US, but you know, you're looking at some European economies in particular, likely to have actually inflation back at target in terms of annual inflation rates. And you know, if you look at kind of shorter moving aggregates of inflation, so you know, the three month or quarterly trends, you know, as we saw in the US Q4 GDP data, inflation is beginning to look really, really quite normal again. Yep. Read a piece about that on the Eurozone this morning that is out. Please do read that. Please read that. Um, The question I think I've taken the most from clients as well as the sales team and the traders over the last few weeks is related to the geopolitical impact on inflation. And we had Mark Rosenberg from GeoQuant on a couple of weeks ago, and he talked about the Houthi insurgents and their attacks on Red Sea shipping and whether this was a potential conflagration point that would metastasize. I've just used two very big words there. But nevertheless, whether that would create inflationary pressures. And I wanted to know if you were seeing anything coming through as far as shipping costs contributing to higher prices. And this isn't just the US, but really anywhere. Is there any evidence of that that we can see? We've kind of been down this road before through the pandemic. And and, and I think both with price stats, but I think also actually with our uh, media stats data, which is you know, basically looking at things like corporate announcements and media articles on, and just looking for the term shortage uh, to see how these disruptions are potentially feeding through back to the consumer. We don't see very much so far. Media coverage is kind of normalized back to average, but it's not, not above average in terms of the mentions of shortages. With price stats, with the online data, you know, we're getting fastest read here possible in terms of potential pass-through into the consumer as of data as of the 26th of January, there isn't much evidence of it at all. You know, in, in, and in aggregate, in, in inflation remains below its seasonal average. So I, I feel like we're in a good position to see it if it comes, mm. um, but it doesn't seem to have arrived yet. Speaking of central banks and policy cycles, there's one exception to the easing party that seems to be getting underway shortly for developed market central banks. It's already well underway for many emerging market central banks, of course. But there was one central bank you highlighted in your piece that might be looking the other way. And that, of course, is the Bank of Japan. We cited the 
persistent above normal levels of inflation we were capturing in online prices as a potential impetus for them to act and to either continue to tweak yield curve control, or I think what is now more likely is getting rid of negative rates. What's the inflation picture look like today around that view, and does it challenge the view? I think it's pretty solid. And look, Tim, as you know, you know, I, I feel like we've been talking about Japanese inflation being back for certainly more than a year. I, I read the January statement as them finally beginning to pivot, beginning to give the market forward guidance on actual tightening. But the inflation trend, I think, is still fairly solid. It's not that it's accelerated much since since September, but it is right now for January, one of the few countries where the month-on-month gain in online prices is actually above seasonal averages. And mm. so I, I feel like the message from price stats has been clear for about two and a half years that yeah. you know, the Japanese inflation is simply on a different trend. And given that's the case, you know, the BOJ should have some confidence that you know, they can begin to normalize policy. Well, let's think about that just to, to finish out the question. There's about 25 basis points of hikes priced this year. They've already set the sort of cap at which 10-year yields can rise to to at 100 basis points or 1% for people who aren't in markets. And 10-year yields are still only at 0.72%. So there's room for markets to adjust to what the BOJ has already said they will allow. Do you think that's enough pricing, especially in the front end? Is 25 basis points all they're going to do or can they exceed that? I mean, I think it, it, it gets to the question that as everyone cuts rates everywhere else, we're going to be asking the same question, which is where's, where's neutral? Yeah. Because actually, if you think about you know, so the Japanese situation is, is interesting because it's not just inflation that's come back. It's that growth is a trend. You know, so you've got zero output gap. You've got a positive inflation gap. And, you know, j- just thinking about that as a simple framework, then it, it really does suggest that, that short term rates should be at some kind of neutral in Japan, wherever that is. It would it would hard to be believed that you know even after the years of deflation that they've had uh, that the neutral rate is a you know an awful long way below zero, which means that nominal rates should be between one and two. Mm. Um, now, of course, understandably, given the, the the difficulties they've had with deflation, you know it makes perfect sense that the BOJ will go gradually, but it seems pretty unlikely that given the output is back at trend, inflation is above trend, that they would stop at just 25 basis points. You know, short-term rates need to be nearer 1%, at least, I would say, uh, you know, in the next couple of years to kind of claim that they've managed to normalize policy. Wow. So that is a big yen long signal. Is there anything that you have in mind as far as a target for where the yen can get to if that is to be, in fact, realized? Here's an interesting thought. So, you know, but by price stats own PPP metrics, the yen is still more than 30% undervalued. If policy is back to neutral and normalizing, you've got to wonder, does the yen deserve to be 30% under value? Now, of course, look, that, the, the other point to note is obviously carry is very appealing with vol as, as low as it currently is. Yeah. Uh, but I think as a, as a medium-term play, why is the yen so cheap if things are normalizing in Japan and actually growth is back at trend? So let's finish this discussion with how institutions have been responding to this. Last year, I think Maria on our team puts it very well. Investors really barbelled cash with tech stocks. They they took risks at opposite ends of the spectrum, really, where you were getting growth and high earnings quality from tech and communication services, and you were protecting yourself in the front end with inflation coming down as well. And with recession risks having been very high or seemingly very high. How do you think this changes if central banks do start to ease? I mean, we're heading into an easing cycle, potentially, with financial conditions already quite easy, and equity markets especially on their highs. 
Do you think in looking especially at our asset allocation indicators and the, the kind of the monthly three eyes indicators that we put out on investor positioning, do you think that weight towards equities and particularly the riskier part of the equity spectrum has room to even grow further on that basis? I think when you look at the the broader asset allocation starting point for 24, you sort of question whether markets have fully discounted a recession, I think. I think they might have discounted slower growth. And you know, obviously, there's the hope of some easing, maybe offsetting the slower growth. But if the starting point is reasonably significant overweight in equities and an underweight in fixed income and an overweight in cash, as you know, with this barbell lane, you've got to assume that once the easing comes, and especially if it comes alongside a recession, that money will flow out of cash back into fixed income rather than Mm. into equities. Maria frequently notes, actually, the biggest overweight probably across, maybe even across all our asset classes, is probably in US tech. And so you might assume there might be a little bit of rebalancing there, although it's trading much more off the AI narrative, perhaps, than it is the broader macro. So it, it might be a bit dependent on that. But I, th- I think in general, you'd assume that there'd be a rebalancing towards fixed income. Yeah. Well, there's plenty of room to do so. And in fact, next week's episode is going to be all about AI and tech. We will have Anthony Suvali from our team doing that, as well as Rebecca Chesworth from SSGA. For this week, though, Michael, it's been great to get an update on this stuff. I think we'll probably have to do this around mid-year as well to give a little report card on where things stand. We'll know a lot more by then, I'm sure. Central banks will probably have already started easing by then. In the meantime, I'll just say thank you very much, as always, for joining us. Pleasure, Tim. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of Street Signals from the research team at State Street Global Markets. This podcast and all of our research can be found at our web portal, Insights. There, you'll be able to find all of our latest thinking on macroeconomics and markets, where we leverage our deep experience in research on investor behavior, inflation, risk, and media sentiment, all of which goes into building an award-winning strategy product. If you're a client of State Street, hit us up there at globalmarkets.statestreet.com. We'll see you next time. This communication is provided by State Street Bank and Trust Company, hereafter referred to as State Street, and is for informational purposes only, and is not intended to suggest or recommend any transaction, investment, or investment strategy. It does not constitute investment research, nor does it purport to be comprehensive or intended to replace the exercise of an investor's own careful, independent review and judgment regarding any investment decision. This communication and the information herein does not constitute investment legal or tax advice, and is not a solicitation to buy or sell securities or any financial instrument, nor is it intended to constitute a binding contractual arrangement or commitment by State Street of any kind. The information provided does not take into account any particular investment objectives, strategies, investment horizon, or tax status. The views expressed herein are the views of State Street as of the date specified and are subject to change without notice based on market and other conditions. The information provided herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable at the time of publication. Nonetheless, we make no representations or assurances that the information is complete or accurate, and you should not place any reliance on said information. State Street hereby disclaims any warranty and all liability, whether arising in contract, tort, or otherwise, for any losses, liabilities, damages, expenses, or costs, either direct, indirect, consequential, special, or punitive, arising from or in connection with any use of this communication and or the information herein. State Street or its affiliates may from time to time as principal or agent for its own account or for those of its clients have positions in and or actively trade in financial instruments or other products identical to or economically related to those discussed in this communication. State Street may have a commercial relationship with issuers of financial instruments or other products discussed in this communication. This communication may contain information deemed to be forward-looking statements. These statements are based on assumptions, analyses, and expectations of State Street in light of its experience and perception of historical trends, current conditions, expected future developments, and other factors it believes appropriate under the circumstances. All information is subject to change without notice. This communication or any portion hereof may not be redistributed without the prior written consent of State Street. Past performance is no guarantee of future results.